So welcome back to the Yale Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about Parkinson's Plus Syndromes. And we have two wonderful individuals coming to chat with us about this, you know, interesting pathophysiology today. One will be Dr. Catherine Fu. She's one of the movement fellows at UCLA. And then we have Dr. Sarah Schaefer coming from here at Yale. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for inviting us. I'm a big fan of the Neurology Exam Prep podcast. I'm really uh, excited to be joining today. Fantastic. It's always wonderful to have both of you all here. Um, so today, we're really going to be focusing on four different syndromes. Uh, that's going to be really case-based is how we're going to approach it. So we'll have Sarah kind of go through one of the cases um, of a patient that would typically present to the movement disorders clinic. And then we'll go through aspects that are more consistent with maybe an atypical Parkinsonism, something that would really perk up your ears when you're seeing a patient and having to be a little bit broader about how you're approaching somebody who's coming in with an idiopathic Parkinson's disease, or at least referred for that. So to begin, we can start with our first case. Sounds like a plan. I'll just, uh, you know, spitball off the top of my head here. So let's say we have a 63-year-old female coming in with worsening Parkinson's symptoms referred by a general neurologist because the patient started having some rigidity and some bradykinesia, some slowing down of movements and decreased stride length, maybe one to two years ago. And the general neurologist diagnosed Parkinson's and put the patient on carbidopa levodopa up to 600 milligrams a day of levodopa. So two tabs, three times a day. And and the patient doesn't really seem to be responding to that medication. And in talking to the patient, you learn that the patient has been having falls and mostly that's happened when the patient turns, they kind of rear backwards and fall backwards. Or if they're getting up from a chair or from a car, they kind of fall back into the chair and are having a lot of difficulties with balance. Yeah. So I think we can probably stop there. And Catherine, what do you think, you know, hearing that history, are there things that get you concerned right off the bat that maybe there's something more going on? Yeah, absolutely. I think the two key things that stand out from this case is the early falls, um, as well as that early postural uh, instability. And so typically in Parkinson's disease, you know, we do see patients who will eventually develop postural instability or perhaps freezing of gait, but that tends to happen, you know, sort of later in the course. So we're thinking more typically at least five or 10 years down the line, whereas this person's presenting within one to two years of those initial symptoms of Parkinsonism. And so that's certainly a bit of a red flag for me and certainly a red flag in general for thinking about uh, Parkinson's plus syndromes and sort of the atypical Parkinson's uh, conditions. The other thing is that lack of levodopa responsiveness. 600 milligrams per day is, you know, not uh, sort of that low starting dose. So it is a reasonable amount of cinnamon. And so the fact that they haven't really responded is another red flag. Um, And so at this point, you know, one of the Parkinson's plus syndromes uh, that tends to present with early falls and that postural instability is potentially PSP. And so I would want to ask about, are they also having any vision issues? Um, For example, how we would ask about this is sort of the classic uh, symptom in PSP is like, oh, they're having difficulty going downstairs because of that initial down gaze impairment. 
Some people describe like a difficulty reading because of their inability to scan lines on a page or even like difficulty eating because they're having trouble like looking down at their food. So outside of just asking about like double vision, these are some other ways to get at uh, some of the vision issues. And then also other things I would definitely look for on exam are sort of that more axial rigidity as opposed to the appendicular rigidity that we see with Parkinson's disease. And then confirming certainly on their gait exam, like are they festinating? Do they have that postural instability? Are they freezing? And that would help sort of confirm the features that we're hearing on the history. Yeah, you really hit the nail on the head with most of the things that I would be thinking about. The eye movement exam is going to be really helpful in this patient. And particularly, as you mentioned, talking to them about instances where they've noticed that their vertical gaze is impaired. So down gaze is impaired when they're walking downstairs or trying to eat their food because the vertical gaze is affected first in progressive supranuclear palsy. And that could manifest early on with slow saccades and then also develop a restriction of up gaze and down gaze. Now it's important to note that up gaze can be impaired as people age, but down gaze is generally preserved. And so that's a helpful thing to look for on exam. In addition to what we call square wave jerks, which is when somebody's in primary gaze, so they're looking straight ahead at a target like your thumb, and their eyes kind of jerk back and forth from the target. They jerk to one side, then stop, then jerk to the other side, then stop, and back and forth. And those are called square wave jerks because of how they are If you put it on a graph, it's a square wave because they jerk over to one side, then stop, then jerk to the other side, then stop. That axial rigidity, that's part of the thing that um, contributes to imbalance in these patients. They may on rigidity testing have more neck rigidity than appendicular rigidity. And then, of course, retropulsion, these are the patients that are trying to get up from the chair and they just keep falling back and they have positive pull tests even very early in disease. And I wanted to add two more potential exam maneuvers for the eye movement exam, because I do agree that's a very important part of the evaluation for PSP. Um, In addition to looking at both horizontal and vertical saccades, you can look for that optokinetic nystagmus, so OCAN, and use an OCAN flag or OCAN tape to look for, you know, OCAN impairment and down saccades, you actually move the tape upward and you see that that down saccade uh, is impaired. An additional exam maneuver that you can use as well is actually uh, an anti-saccade task, which I actually didn't learn about until relatively recently. And you actually ask the patient to look uh, in the opposite direction to the visual stimulus. And that's been shown to correlate with frontal lobe dysfunction. I would just add that the OKN test, you know, a lot of the residents these days probably have that in an app (laughs) as opposed to carrying a strip around. (laughs) Yeah, can confirm. I have an app for my stroke codes and it also has that and built into it. (laughs) <laughs> so that's fantastic. So it sounds like at least from the history and from the exam, you know, there are a lot of things that were red flags in this this case and particularly got you all interested in going down a path towards progressive supranuclear palsy, particularly the impaired balance, this postural instability and retropulsion, and a lot of these visual abnormalities that can be pretty subtle. Yeah, especially early on, they can be subtle. You want to make sure that you're really looking at any difference between vertical and horizontal eye movements because that difference can show you that the vertical eye movements are relatively impaired. Yeah, definitely. And it's one of the reasons why movement is so great, right? All of these very subtle things that you can pick up and really change a course. 
Yeah, we're really neuro-ophthalmologists in hiding. So outside of the vision abnormalities and you have the levodopa non-responsiveness and more of this axial-based rigidity. So I think those are some really key features to take away from at least these, some of these signs, at least that we can be looking for and picking up for. In terms of diagnostics, then, what would your next steps be in terms of evaluating for, you know, evaluating this patient? Are there any types of diagnostic testing that is helpful or any signs or symptoms that we can look for on imaging that may be beneficial in these patients? Well, I would start by saying that this is a tauopathy. So there's a lot of overlap with other tauopathies like corticobasal syndrome and frontotemporal dementia, but it doesn't overlap with synucleinopathies in a lot of ways. And, and the thing that you definitely want to ask a patient about if you're worried about any atypical Parkinsonism or versus Parkinson's disease is REM sleep behavior disorder, because that's found in synucleinopathies, but not really in tauopathies. And so if they have very clear evidence, especially on polysomnography of REM sleep behavior disorder, that's going to be a big check in the box outside of progressive supranuclear palsy. And then the, you know, in somebody who has these atypical features, I certainly would get imaging. I'd get an MRI in these patients. And I'm sure we're going to talk about some of the signs and features that we see on MRIs, particularly this midbrain atrophy, that if you think about it, right, the word supranuclear is above the nuclei. And when what that's talking about is above the eye movement nuclei. So above cranial nerves, three, four, and six. And so three, four, and six are in the lower midbrain upper pons. And, and so if you're supranuclear or if you're above that, that's the midbrain, right? So that's how you can remember it. It's actually in the name. <laughs> um, and we look for on axial images, this Mickey Mouse sign is one of the things that uh, people say where they have big, you know, Mickey Mouse ears and a very atrophied midbrain. And then on sagittal Im imaging, it's called a hummingbird sign because the pons or the belly of the hummingbird is of normal girth, but the midbrain itself looks like a hummingbird beak because it's atrophied above the level of the pons. Yeah. And just to add to that, um, another sort of sign that gets thrown out there is that morning glory sign. It's essentially very similar, just the atrophy of the midbrain that you see on the axial section sections on MRI brain. Um, there are some people who, you know, take like midbrain to pond sort of ratios on imaging. Um, I don't typically do that um, for my patients, but we sort of do see these uh, signs on MRI brain. And I would definitely encourage our listeners to kind of look up these signs and just to visually see them as well, because they definitely come up on exams quite frequently. Absolutely. Are there any other imaging modalities? I know a lot of Patients generally will come into your clinic, especially if they've been seen by a more general neurologist with DAP scans and PET-related scans. Are there anything concerning or specific that you can look for on those to help differentiate? I mean, so, you know, DAT scans is something to mention that is going to be abnormal potentially in every single one of the atypical Parkinsonisms in, and in Parkinson's disease. So it's not that useful to differentiate between the two. It may be that ultimately we'll be able to get resolution that's going to be helpful in terms of, you know, posterior versus anterior striatal, you know, the decrease in, and things like that. But, um, but at the moment, it's just not that helpful for differentiating. So we don't generally order those. And then things like pet imaging, it's not something that's 
easily ordered or easily covered for a lot of these. Um, and it's not very specific either, as far as I know. And so it's not something we typically order either. If it's very early in the disease and the midbrain atrophy is not apparent on an MRI, then really the next course is to just follow the patient and they declare themselves clinically. And even then, there are a lot of pathology studies that have shown that patients with clinical diagnoses of this, that, or the other, atypical Parkinsonism often have pathological diagnoses that are different. So, you know, there's a, there's a ways to go here and we could have a whole nother podcast on all the research that's being done, but but at the moment, we're mostly tied to MRIs and clinical diagnosis. If we've kind of gotten to this patient, we've seen them in clinic, and we have these kind of atypical features that are getting us concerned about an atypical Parkinsonism, and in this case, PSP, how would you go about managing this patient? What would be the next steps in which we could kind of optimize their care as best we can? Sure. Um, I can speak to this. So most of the treatment, unfortunately, at this time for most of the Parkinson's plus syndromes and for PSP certainly is symptomatic. Um, and so really it's going to be geared towards which symptoms are most bothersome to patients. Generally, the rule of thumb that I've been taught is that we try, even though these patients are classically not levodopa responsive, we at least will try them on, you know, 1000 milligrams per day of levodopa just to see if there even is a little bit of possible responsiveness, because even that can potentially be beneficial for their, you know, rigidity or bradykinesia. But if not, then, and they're having side effects from the levodopa, then certainly we would, we, we would wean them back down. Other potential treatments for PSP, you know, if they have mood issues, depression, anxiety, we offer them SSRIs, uh, SNRIs. If they have gait freezing, a lot of that is, you know, sort of physical therapy, regular exercise as much as possible. There's some literature, it's more so in Parkinson's disease for using like things like denepazil for or, you know, gait or freezing of gait. Um, I haven't had a lot of success with using those medications in PSP. And similarly, there's some old literature on like possible, you know, benefit of amantadine for gait or motor symptoms in PSP. But once again, you know, we'll, we'll try it and we'll offer it to these patients, but sort of that response is a, is a bit variable. And then certainly for patients with sialuria or other issues, we'll offer the Botox. A lot of these patients actually have have something called eyelid opening apraxia, where their eyes are sort of just closed and sort of similar to the gate freezing. Some people in the literature have described this as like lid freezing. And so sometimes we'll actually offer them Botox in the eyelids, sort of like we do for blepharospasm to see if that might help them open their eyes, because obviously that's very disruptive to daily function. And I know typically we don't like using TCAs in patients uh, because of the anticholinergic side effects, but um, I would keep that sort of in the very, very back corner of your minds, because I do have a patient who he was having a lot of sleep issues and a lot of secretions and he would, you know, moan pretty often throughout the night. It would be very disruptive to the family. And so we actually used TCA's, the side effects to our advantage. And we hoped that it would sort of dry out his secretions and also help him with sleep a little bit. So we started him on amitriptyline and increased the dose. And when he came back, all of those symptoms were a bit better. And so that is something uh, that we typically don't recommend, but can also uh, potentially be a tool. Any additions from your end, Sarah? No, I mean, it's really a, a very tailored approach depending on what the patient is experiencing. And 
as far as anticholinergics like amantadine and TCAs, you're right. You can use them to your advantage if they're having a lot of hypersalivation or they're not getting good sleep. But, you know, then again, it can worsen things like constipation, which are a big problem in PSP patients and hallucinations and delusions and things, which can be a problem as well. So it's, it's a very tailored approach for any patient and you just do your best. And, you know, the only other thing I would say is that as with a lot of movement disorders, you want to do a lot of safety counseling, you know, on, on things like driving, things like uh, fall prevention. You know, these are the patients where you want to get um, a wheelchair in the home pretty early because even with a walker, because they have retropulsion, you know, they just go backwards and take the walker with them. So it's not very good in terms of preventing falls. Um, so, you know, having a lot of frank discussions about, you know, how many steps do you have in your home and um, do you have the ability to adapt to your bathroom and, and all of those types of things? No, I think those are all wonderful points. And I think this will be a bit of a running theme through most of these patients that we talk about today, where it is going to be a lot of symptomatic management, making sure they have as many resources early and often to really optimize their course going forward. So I think... At that point, we've covered a pretty decent amount on PSP. Would you all want to move on to the next case? Yeah, sounds good to me. Let's say we have a 59-year-old man coming in. He previously was a, a musician and has noticed that it's become a little bit more difficult to use his right hand to pluck the strings. And when you examine him, you notice that not only does he have a little bit of dystonic posturing in that right hand, but he also has some bradykinesia in the right foot when he's tapping, even though there's no dystonia in the right foot, a little bit decreased facial expression and vocal volume. And um, there are some other things that that prompts you to do on the exam that may ultimately be abnormal, but I'd like to see what Catherine's thinking at this point, and then we can talk about some of the special exam features that we might use. So certainly the things that stand out to me uh, in this case is sort of that early potentially dystonic posturing in the hand. Um, I would say that's a little bit unusual. Sometimes we will see sort of an early like curling of the foot or dystonia for Parkinson's disease. But if there is dystonia of the hand, I also want to look for, you know, is there other issues that are leading to that loss of dexterity? Is it really just bradykinesia or rigidity? Or is there some like, for example, apraxia, um, which is that uh, problem or difficulty with carrying out a motor program or a motor sequence? And potentially that would clue me into something more than just uh, Parkinson's disease. Yeah. So on exam, we noted that he, when he, his hands were outstretched, he had some dystonic posturing of the hand, no tremor, but um, also some myoclonic jerks of the right arm. And those were exacerbated when we tapped on his arm. So that's what we call stimulus-induced myoclonus. When you provide a stimulus and, and uh, that causes the myoclonus to happen. In addition, we tested him for apraxia, which you can formally test by asking them to do certain tasks with one hand or the other, like show me how you would brush your teeth, show me how you would comb your hair, show me how you would hold a nail and hammer it in. You know, sometimes I do find that patients are not apraxic when you do that formal testing, but when you ask them to do things like 
open and close your hand or even just tap your fingers that they have a really, a really hard time trying to figure out how to do those tasks. And I also account that in the, you know, towards apraxia. And then we tested him for both stereo, uh, astereognosis and agraphesthesia. So agraphesthesia is when you draw in somebody's hand, something like a number or a letter. Usually I use numbers with their eyes closed and ask them to tell you what number it is. And if they're unable to do that, that's agraphesthesia. And that was only present in his right hand. And then astereognosis is when you give them a small object, like a paper, what it is. And if they can't, that's astereognosis. And so apraxia, astereognosis, agraphesthesia are all signs of cortical dysfunction and would make you think that there's something above the basal ganglia that's going wrong in this patient. Yeah, I would agree. I think this was a very <laughs> comprehensive exam. Yeah, I would want to highlight the apraxia, agraphesthesia, astereognosis that are all sort of those cortical signs. And then in addition to that, sort of the asymmetric presentation, the dystonia, and certainly the myoclonus is something that all of these together, I would say sort of clue me into a potential diagnosis of corticobasal syndrome or corticobasal degeneration. Um, and so this is what I'm thinking about as we're moving through the exam. The other thing that you may think about and, and hear about on, on medical exams, though, honestly, I've only seen this once or twice in patients is alien limb phenomenon. So there are different types of alien limb phenomenon. You know, there's there's kind of utilization behaviors. That's a more frontal situation where you're kind of picking at things or grabbing things just because they're there. There's a confrontational alien limb phenomenon uh, where one hand is fighting against the other that you get with colossal, like corpus callosum lesions. And then there's a parietal alien limb phenomenon, which is a levitation. And that's the type that you get in corticobasal syndrome where the arm just sort of levitates without the patient meaning for it to, and then they notice and they can put it down. So I've had patients tell me, oh yeah, when I'm just, you know, not paying attention and brushing my teeth, my arm starts, you know, going up and then I notice <laughs> and I'm not doing it. So that's something else to ask about. All right. So just to kind of summarize a little bit of the case so far. So Right now, the biggest concern, at least clinically, from what I hear from Catherine, is for a cortical basal degeneration. And some of the things that really clued us in here were this really dystonic posturing, these stimulus-induced myoclonic jerks, and these cortical signs. So the apraxia, the agraphesthesia, astereognosis, and even this alien limb phenomenon that Dr. Schaefer just kind of alluded to. So with that said, and with that in mind, are there going to be any additional findings on imaging perhaps for this one, as we kind of talked about some of those more testable signs in PSP? Sure. So we typically like to get an MRI brain, pursue imaging studies to see what might be going on. Um, and so if we're looking for features consistent for corticobasal syndrome, you can see this sort of progressive or asymmetric atrophy affecting uh, the posterior regions of the frontal lobe or the superior parietal lobe. You might also see some flare hyperintensities in the subcortical white matter, sort of in that Rolandic region around the central sulcus. And sometimes you can see a T2 hyperintensity uh, of the globus pallidus as well. I want to mention that this is often read as normal by radiology. And you absolutely have to get the images and look at them yourself to see if there are difference differences um, right to left in terms of sulcal size. I am not sure that I've ever had a neuroradiologist read this as abnormal. It's us that are reading it as abnormal. So if it's an outside image and it's like scattered T2 white matter hyperintensities, 
get that image. You need it. We didn't talk about it in depth, perhaps, with the last case with PSP. But ultimately, the pathophysiology in this condition and with PSP is a a tauopathy. Is that correct? Yes, this is a tauopathy. And I want to use this opportunity to explain the language as well. So we've been sort of interchangeably using corticobasal degeneration and corticobasal syndrome. Corticobasal degeneration is a pathologically confirmed tauopathy, whereas corticobasal syndrome is the clinical syndrome that just like PSP, when these patients pass away and undergo autopsy studies, sometimes they're diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia. Sometimes they're diagnosed with PSP. Sometimes they're diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Um, And so it's only when it's pathologically confirmed by autopsy that you actually use the word degeneration instead of syndrome. Gotcha. That is definitely a very key distinction to make sure we're all using the same terminology when discussing these patients. In terms of management, Are there any specific considerations, at least with the problems that these patients come in with that maybe you would want to gear a little bit more specifically than say with the PSP patient or your typical idiopathic Parkinson's disease patient? What I would mention at this point that's sort of perhaps a little bit more unique to corticobasal syndrome is some of these patients can have very bothersome myoclonus. And so we'll use the armamentarium that we have available to us to treat myoclonus, right? So typically that's Keppra, valproic acid, or benzodiazepines. Um, if they're already having behavioral or mood issues, then you know potentially Keppra is not a great choice. Um, and so we'll look to some of the other medications that we have. Um, but that's something, certainly something we we want to address in our patients. Otherwise, I would say the the rules of thumb still apply here. You know, we can try levodopa up to a thousand milligrams per day to see if there's a little bit of levodopa responsiveness. Although, you know, once again, classically there's not. Um, and then for dystonia, any sort of very bothersome focal dystonia, we can offer botulinum toxin injections. Um, and then certainly for mood issues, SSRIs, um, sort of those medications as well. All right. Are there any specific therapies that may be beneficial to these patients, at least from a cognitive perspective or any sort of occupational therapy that's a little bit more helpful with these dystonias outside of treatment? Um, For all of these Parkinson's-related cognitive issues, we do use cholinesterase inhibitors like rivastigmine and denepazil, and sometimes memantine is added as well you know, they have the efficacy, the exception is Lewy body disease. Okay. We'll get there, but, but they have about the efficacy that they do in Alzheimer's is my understanding that the, you know, they might help a little bit. Uh, Patients might notice a little bit of a change, but it's not um, a blockbuster situation. So definitely a little bit of help, but maybe nothing too dramatic. In terms of moving forward, then I think at this point, we've covered at least two big Parkinson's plus syndromes being PSP and cortical basal syndrome. Would it be okay to move on to the next one? Yeah, definitely. So we can move through after the tauopathies and move on to the next class. Ah, the synucleinopathies, (laughs) our favorite. No. uh, (laughs) All right. So let's say you have a 65 year old man coming in with a rapidly progressive Parkinsonism. He developed symptoms starting three years ago. 
and is already using a walker and having significant impairment and has also quite a bit of urinary urgency. And it's good when that happens to to clarify because some of these patients have so much gait difficulty that it's not really true urinary urgency. It's just that they take too long to get to the bathroom. But in this gentleman, he has true urinary urgency where he really, once he feels he has to go, he has to go right away, as well as some orthostatic symptoms uh, when he stands up to the point where he has not had syncope, but had pre-syncope. I'll stop there and see what Catherine thinks. So I would highlight some of the key features of this history as that rapidly progressive Parkinsonism. So once again, big red flag, uh, if people are, you know, requiring a walker or becoming wheelchair bound within that first sort of three to five years, um, that definitely clues me into some sort of Parkinson's plus or atypical Parkinsonism. And then in addition, the dysautonomia that's being highlighted. So that urinary urgency, the orthostatic hypotension leading to presyncope, sort of near syncope episodes is quite unusual and certainly is sort of cluing me into potentially thinking about multiple system atrophy, given that predominant dysautonomia. So, uh, you know, multiple system atrophy is actually more complicated than some of the others because there are different types where the primary movement disorder is Parkinsonism, but there is another type where primarily the patients have cerebellar features. So ataxia, dysmetria, um, slurred speech, and those types of issues, but they're both alpha-synucleinopathies that ultimately affect the brainstem and cause autonomic dysfunction as well. And I'll just put in a, a little thing here. This isn't a movement disorder technically, but primary autonomic failure is a disorder where it's just like the name says, where you have primary autonomic failure of, you know, a a lot of orthostatic hypotension and not only orthostatic hypotension on standing with syncope, but supine hypertension. So your blood pressure goes too low when you stand up, it goes too high when you lie down um, and other autonomic issues. And these patients actually uh, have a really high incidence of progressing to alpha-synucleinopathies, including MSA and Lewy body and Parkinson's disease. So these are all, there's quite a bit of overlap with these syndromes. Uh, The other thing I'd like to say is that autonomic dysfunction is very common in Parkinson's disease, right? It's it's really common that even early Parkinson's patients complain of nocturia, of a little bit of lightheadedness on standing, but the degree to which there is an issue if the patients are passing out or almost passing out, if they have really profound orthostatic hypotension dropping to the 70s or 60s systolic, and then when they lie down, it's in the 220s. You know, if they are having uh, urinary issues that are enough to require a Foley, where they're having incontinence, not just uh, a little bit of dysfunction, erectile dysfunction is obviously a very common syndrome in, in patients in our age population, but it's something to ask about as well. These are the things that are going to make you think more about um, multiple systems atrophy. And the other things would be midbrain type dysfunction things. So they have voice changes, they have swallowing dysfunction, and they have breathing dysfunction. So they can have both strider and what's called an inspiratory sigh, which is like when somebody goes, (gasps) when they're breathing, (gasps) 
They have an audible inspiration. Um, they have really, it's really common for MSA patients to have sleep apnea um, and things of that nature, other sleep disorders. So these are the things that might clue you into there's something else going on here. Yeah. I just want to emphasize Sarah's point about the sort of profound dysautonomia that we tend to see with MSA patients. Like when I have gotten MSA referrals from other neurologists, these are people who are coming to me because they've had syncopal episodes, like multiple syncopal episodes are already catheterized because of urinary retention. And those are are big clues that um, we're probably thinking about MSA. I think this is a point that's often a point of confusion among trainees and even general neurologists, because as Sarah mentioned, Parkinson's disease, you can see a bit of dysautonomia as well, um, as she described, but it's sort of that degree of severity that would, I would say can help differentiate the two. And certainly if there are cerebellar features, that's something we do not see in Parkinson's disease. And so that should be a, a huge red flag that there's something else going on. So I think that was a wonderful summary so far of definitely some of the symptoms to be watched out for. Now, I know in the other ones, we talked a little bit of maybe some signs that maybe a little bit more specific or at least atypical for Parkinson's and maybe a little bit more typical for MSA. Are there any signs on this patient's exam that would lean you one way or the other? So when they have MSAP, so that is to say MSA Parkinsonism, as opposed to MSAC, which is MSA cerebellar type, they can be hard to differentiate at the beginning, especially if the autonomic stuff is not extraordinarily pronounced. Really, the rate of progression is going to be one of the most helpful keys. Uh, you know, the patient becoming wheelchair bound within a few years instead of taking 10, 15, or 20 years to get to the point of becoming wheelchair bound. And looking on exam and asking about these other, you know, swallowing and breathing abnormalities, which can happen, especially the swallowing dysfunction can happen in Parkinson's. But again, that's usually much, much later in the disease course. Right. And you can also sometimes in MSA patients see these sort of postural deformities that are, you know, sort of described in the textbooks like camptochormia, which is this forward bending only in the standing position, PISA syndrome, which is this lateral bending of the trunk uh, with a tendency to lead to one side, and then anterocolis as well, which is that excessive forward neck flexion as a dystonic manifestation um, as well. All right. So now that we've kind of gone through some of the key symptoms and signs, what about any imaging findings in these patients? Perhaps at this point, it sounds like one of the go-tos that we've been able to discuss, or at least some MRI features that may clue us in. So the classic thing that you know trainees learn about is the hot cross bun sign. So the hot cross bun sign is, is hyperintensities in a cross in the pons that correlate to the um, middle cerebellar peduncle atrophy and cerebellar atrophy. So this is more of a sign in MSAC or MSA cerebellar patients. And that makes sense, right, in terms of the anatomy that those patients would have middle cerebellar peduncle atrophy, they'd have cerebellar atrophy, and they'd have atrophy and dysfunction of these pontine you know, cerebellar inputs. In MSAP, you're going to be looking higher up in the basal ganglia. And so you can see putaminal atrophy in these patients. And there's um, something called a putaminal rim sign, which is a 
T2 hyperintensity, and also there's a ADC hyperintensity, I believe, in a rim sort of at the back of the putamen bilaterally. And this can be confused with the external capsule, but it's really right on the edge in kind of a V shape in the back of the putamen. So those are things to look out for. And I would caution as I did with all the other atypicals that these are not things that are going to necessarily be spontaneously read. So you have to look at your own you have to look at your own stuff. I just want to add a point about the hot cross bun sign. That sign is not necessarily specific to MSA. And so sometimes we'll see a lot, even in the radiology reports, like hot cross bun sign concerning for MSA, but you can see this sign right in spinocerebellar atrophy or in some of the other genetic like cerebellar conditions. And so it's just a sign demonstrating that there is this degeneration of the pontocerebellar tracts. Um, and so if you have a patient who has a genetic SCA diagnosis and that you see this sign, it's not like all of a sudden, you know, they have MSAC. So one of the things that I came across in my reading for this podcast was something called the MIBG myocardiosyntigraphy, which is used at sometimes to look into the diagnosis of MSA. Would you all be able to just Tell us a little bit more about this as it's definitely come up on at least some testing that I've had over the last several years. I can take this one. Um, I would say, you know, in our group's practice, we don't often obtain the MIBG study because there's sort of a variable, I think, sensitivity and specificity. But the idea behind this study is that in Parkinson's disease, the autonomic neurodegeneration is both pre and post ganglionic. So uptake is impaired, whereas in MSA, that autonomic neurodegeneration is predominantly preganglionic, so uptake is preserved. Um, and so I've, uh, I remember asking this question to a movement disorders neurologist as a resident, like how often do you get this? Because this does show up in articles and textbooks and on test questions. And I think it's a little bit variable by institution, how easily accessible this test is. Is it covered by insurance and things like that? You know, if you're very much concerned early in the course, one way or the other, you can potentially get this test. But typically in our practice, it's not sort of common practice. Um, but I'd be interested, Sarah, to see what your experience is with this. Yeah, we don't get it often. It's a very complicated cardiac you know, nuclear imaging scan and patients often have to hold certain medications for periods of time before it and things like that. Um, and as Catherine mentioned, it's sometimes not covered by insurance because it doesn't change management. You know, once we get to the point where we're actually offering disease modifying therapies for MSA versus Parkinson's, this might be something that's used a little bit more, though it may be that we have other tools by then, like uh, 7T MRIs and skin biopsies and things like that, that are going to help us differentiate early on. You know, some patients, I, I, I have conversations with some patients who just say, I don't want all these tests and we'll just see what happens. And if it doesn't change our management, you know, we're going to push levodopa either way. Maybe we'll get a repeat MRI at some point if the first MRI didn't see any changes to see if some of these subtle signs are developing, which would certainly support the idea that you have MSA versus uh, PD, but others, they just want to know, you know, and so we have ordered it for patients. And again, if it's abnormal, 
that's consistent with Parkinson's disease. But if it's normal, it's consistent with MSA. So it's not helpful if your differential diagnosis for a cerebellar patient, for example, is MSAC versus spinocerebellar ataxia, because both of those patients are going to have normal studies. But it's helpful if your differential diagnosis is Parkinson's versus MSA. Oh, thank you for going through that. It's definitely a imaging study that obviously we don't get a ton of exposure to. So being able to hear a little bit about the details and its utility is, is definitely super helpful. All right. And one thing we haven't talked about in MSA yet is now that we finally left the land of tauopathy and moved on to synucleinopathies, um, are there any specific things that we want to talk about at least regarding the specific pathology? for these processes? Well, I would just reiterate that these patients may also have things like REM sleep behavior disorder and, you know, symptoms that are found in other synucleinopathies, like pure autonomic failure preceding the uh, development of their movement disorder and things like that. You know, the, the aggregation of the alpha synuclein is actually a little bit different in MSA versus Parkinson's and I'm not a pathologist, so I don't feel like I want to get into the details because I, I'm going to say it wrong. But what I do know is that uh, people are looking at things like skin biopsies and, and intestinal biopsies and things like that to try to determine if not only are there alpha synuclein inclusions, but where are they? And that can help to determine whether the patient has MSA or Parkinson's disease. And that goes for, you know, tauopathies too, looking for um, tau inclusions. So I just wanted to follow up on Sarah's point. She's uh, mentioned a few times skin biopsies. And actually recently they've come out with actually a commercial test testing skin biopsies and actually staining them for alpha synuclein. So we haven't been doing this at our institution, but I've heard of other institutions um, doing this. Um, and they've actually been sending out these skin biopsies and testing for alpha synuclein. And this would probably be in a situation where your differential would be trying to differentiate an alpha synucleinopathy from like a tauopathy. So it wouldn't necessarily be helpful differentiating like Parkinson's disease from MSA, but if your differential was like PSP versus MSA, perhaps that could be a little bit more helpful in that scenario. So I just wanted to put that on people's radar. And I think it's sort of growing in terms of its adoption and clinical use. There are even studies now where they're looking at using RT-Quick, which is you all might be familiar with for prion disease identification in CSF. They're using RT-Quick in order to detect things like alpha-synuclein in CSF and serum. This is not the point of this podcast, but there are a lot of really cool things that are on the horizon in movement disorders. <laughs> Moving on to some of the management for these patients, obviously there's going to be a lot of overlap with the other syndromes we've talked about and kind of gearing towards symptomatic management and really setting them up for success. Are there anything specific that you all wanted to mention, at least for our MSA patients? For the MSA patients that I followed in my clinic, their primary issues have been dysautonomia, um, and especially that orthostatic uh, hypotension, although they do get supine hypertension as well. Well, and so obviously for the orthostatic hypotension, you always want to start with conservative sort of non-pharmacologic measures like adequate hydration and compression stockings and abdominal binders and, you know, frequent small meals and slow changes in position, but oftentimes that's not going to be sufficient in this population of patients, at which point we are thinking more about our pharmacologic options 
And so those will be like fludrocortisone, um, which is the go-to for many of my attendings because it tends to be a bit longer acting. And so many of our patients have orthostatic hypotension more predominant in the morning. So we'll start it sort of in the morning, although some people will need, you know, the the twice a day dosing. Midodrine uh, is a bit shorter acting, although we'll often use that as well. And then droxydopa is another medication. It's a prodrug of norepinephrine. And that one's dosed three times a day. And there, there's a bit more nuance needed for the titration of that, um, which is why oftentimes uh, we don't go to it sort of first line per se. And also it's uh, a bit of an insurance issue to sometimes get it covered. But one of my MSA patients, she's on all three because she has very, very uh, profound dysautonomia. Um, and we've had to really adjust these three medications because when we tried to to increase the fludrocortisone. She would get very uncomfortable and would be very sensitive to like her blood pressure rising. Um, and so we've opted to pursue uh, increases of droxydopa, which in some studies have shown that maybe that risk of supine hypertension is a little bit less. And so those are some of the things that I wanted to mention for dysautonomia. I have some other comments on treatment in MSA, but I wanted um, to see if Sarah had any other thoughts on dysautonomia. I, I just want to say that supine hypertension can be a really huge issue for these patients and actually very dangerous. And so we can sometimes be limited. You know, you don't want to give midodrine too late in the day because when they lie down, that can be a problem. If they take naps during the day and they're on these medications, we generally advise that they do it in an armchair or somehow wedged up so that they're not completely supine. And I even have some patients and, and honestly, these patients are usually managed by nephrology, um, autonomic people or cardiology who are on blood pressure lowering medications before bed and blood pressure raising medications during the day, or they're on different medications, depending on what their home BP cuff shows at any given time or what their symptoms are. So it can be enormously difficult to manage these patients without swinging completely in the other direction. And I am all for involving a multidisciplinary approach to this. So some of the other sort of management considerations, once again, this is all symptomatic. We don't have great treatments for any sort of cerebellar ataxia, but they're, you know, some of the things that have been thrown out there to try amantadine, baclofen, et cetera. And then the other thing that I really wanted to highlight that um, Sarah had mentioned earlier is that sort of laryngeal strider and that inspiratory strider that can happen during sleep. This is something where, you know, it could potentially change management, right? So we want to refer these people to ENT potentially so they can do a laryngoscopy and see if there's any other secondary causes that are causing these issues. And then also our sleep colleagues for a sleep study and potentially having them start these patients on CPAP. And then in very advanced cases, they may even need a tracheostomy. But this is uh, something that, you know, potentially we can sort of intervene on and prolong quality of life or sort of duration of life. And so something I wanted to highlight. No, I think those are all honestly fantastic points about, you know, some of the more specific problems that really can plague these patients and really limit their quality of life. So with that said, I think we may be able to move on to our last disease which I think most people at this point kind of be able to predict based on what we've alluded to thus far. But 
if Sarah, you would like to start off the case, that'd be great. Sure. Let's say we have a 60 year old male who's coming in with mild Parkinsonism type symptoms, maybe some decreased stride length and arm swing, a little bit of loss of dexterity, a low vocal volume. And in history, you, you know, talk to him about all the other symptoms that we always ask about, including hallucinations. And he tells you that, yeah, for the past year, especially at night, uh, before he goes to bed, he's been seeing animals in his bedroom. And when he looks out the window, sometimes he sees people or children on his lawn, but he knows that they're not really there. And uh, he's able to ignore them for now. Yeah. So I would say some of the key features of this history um, is definitely sort of that description of the well-formed hallucinations of animals and people. Um, We didn't get a chance to ask, you know, what medications he's on. Like if for some reason he's on like a huge dose of cinnamon or something in the evening, but thinking that that's probably pretty unlikely, the sort of relatively rapid onset of Parkinsonism type symptoms, those motor symptoms, and then the hallucinations together um, is cluing me into potentially like a dementia with Lewy body uh, presentation. And then I certainly would want to ask about sort of those associated symptoms, right? Like, is he having fluctuations and attention? And cognitive changes. And then certainly also, you know, asking about REM sleep behavior disorder to sort of help guide us that we are talking about an alpha synucleinopathy are other things that I would want to elicit on the history. I'm curious, Catherine, what your go-to for asking about fluctuations and awareness is, because that's a hard one to tease out sometimes. And I've actually seen it on the inpatient side where patients have come in as stroke codes or are getting worked up for seizure disorders because of these. Yeah. In the outpatient setting, to be honest, I'll sort of just have the caregiver describe how they are during the day and like what their daily routine is and what they're doing during the day. And if they're telling me that like, oh yeah, like there are some hours where they're doing great. And then they sort of are just almost very out of it for a few hours and then sort of resume their regular activities. And there's really this like fluctuating pattern, then that's something that will potentially clue me in to um, those fluctuations. Yeah. I'll add that autonomic dysfunction is also common in this group and is part of the criteria for diagnosis of Lewy body, as well as, you know, the other thing that we think about it and comes up on exams is a sensitivity to antipsychotic medication. So dopamine blockade can make them extraordinarily Parkinsonian. And that makes sense. You know, if they already have a relative dopamine deficit, if you add dopamine blockade on top of that, they're not going to do very well. Right. And so that classic test question, right. Um, even for medical students, I would say is like someone who has hallucinations and they get antipsychotics and they get much worse. And someone asks about, you know, their daily routine, and they're also picking up on fluctuations and attention and cognition. And that sort of points you down a DLB pathway. Now, I definitely think that was A lot of the key symptoms and signs here for these patients, particularly these fluctuations, and I really appreciate you all kind of going into how you try and get at those symptoms, because as a learner, it can definitely be hard to tease out some of these key parts of the history. And then some of these more Parkinsonism, maybe a little bit more mild, and this more dementia, visual hallucinations that are formed kind of preceding these symptoms have are all seem to be pretty important aspects. This is another situation where the timing is really important. You know, DLB patients, they 
develop these formed hallucinations very, very early within a, a year of motor onset or even prior to motor onset. Whereas Parkinson's patients can develop formed hallucinations, usually it starts with illusions, which is when you mistake something for something else. You know, you see a pile of clothes on your floor and you think it's a dog for a second, but then you look at it and it's not a dog. That's an illusion, you know, moving towards more vague hallucinations like shadows and things like that. And then moving to very formed hallucinations um, classically of people and animals. In Parkinson's, that can happen in late stage Parkinson's when you have Parkinson's related dementia or with, as Catherine mentioned, an enormous amount of dopaminergic therapy. If you're on really high doses of dopamine agonists or anticholinergics or even cinemet uh, that can cause these problems in vulnerable patients. But if a, if a, treatment naive patient is coming in with pretty mild Parkinsonism and formed hallucinations, then it's, it's Lewy body and until proven otherwise. Now, those are definitely some very fine points to really drill in here to have a better understanding in terms of the pathophysiology, just to be explicit, as we've kind of alluded to with all the other Parkinsonian syndromes that we've gone through, you know, we've been lumping them into tauopathies. And in this case, we're going to be talking more about a synucleinopathy alongside all of that being these more REM sleep behavior disorders and associated signs and symptoms that we've already discussed. We may want to just talk a little bit about maybe some of the more specific management for these patients. I don't know if you all have any good tips or tricks for at least some of these neuropsychiatric symptoms that seem to have been very difficult, at least from what I've seen in clinic. If it's okay, before we get to management, I wanted to make one point about imaging. And this is a case where we sometimes may get pet imaging, and that may be helpful. I've definitely seen some of these findings maybe come up on test questions. Um, And so typically with pet imaging and DLB patients, you'll see classically sort of that parietal and occipital hypometabolism. Another sign that I've seen sometimes come up on exams is a cingulate island sign, which is defined as a sparing of the posterior cingulate cortex relative to sort of the precuneus on pet studies. Um, And so I'd highlight those two points on Pet imaging for DLB patients, parietal and occipital hypometabolism, in contrast to some of the other sort of dementia syndromes that we see and read about in the cingulate island sign. Thank you for going through those imaging findings. I think they're definitely some key ones to really keep in mind and particularly do come up on tests just because they are, you know, relatively related, very good ways in which we can just have an image as well, which is helpful to look at and be tested on. Moving into management for these patients, I know one thing that has been at least difficult and comes up a lot in clinic when I've at least seen these patients is some of their neuropsychiatric symptoms. Do you all have any tips or tricks or ways in which you've approached them in the past? Yeah. And so when I first sort of learned about DLB and Parkinson's disease psychosis management, I used to think of them as like, oh, well, you know, obviously you want to not block dopamine. So you're trying to avoid the atypical antipsychotics and typical antipsychotics. And so thinking about quetiapine, pimavanserin, or nuplazid, and then clozapine is typically that third line (laughs) treatment that we offer because of the risks of agranulocytosis and the need for frequent monitoring. But then as I've been reading more, I've been realizing that actually most of the literature supports the use of cholinesterase uh, inhibitors, almost essentially first line in DLB patients. And that's because it's been shown that not only does it seem to perhaps improve their cognition maybe a little bit, but also there's like behavioral improvements and global improvements. And so it can help with the psychosis too. 
And this is potentially attributed to the relative preservation of cortical muscarinic M1 receptors. And so um, probably the two that have the most data are denepazil and rivastigmine. And then sometimes people will also add on uh, memantine, which is an NMDA antagonist. So that's a different mechanism of action. But those three I want to sort of highlight. Going back to are dopamine sparing treatments for the hallucinations or delusions, quetiapine, pemavanserin, or in very severe cases, uh, clozapine. An additional issue with clozapine is it can sometimes worsen orthostatic hypotension, which I've seen. And so that's a bit tricky at times. And then something that, you know, is tough to balance is the use of cinema in these patients. And so, you know, oftentimes their Parkinsonism is relatively mild. Um, and so it's a discussion of how debilitating, you know, their symptoms are, but certainly we get very cautious if we're thinking about, you know, sort of moderate or higher doses of cinema, because obviously that can potentially worsen the neuropsychiatric manifestations of this condition. And so we perhaps wouldn't be as aggressive with increasing that dose as we would, for example, in a Parkinson's disease patient. Um, and then otherwise, I think the management for dysautonomia, we've discussed um, quite extensively with MSA and for REM sleep behavior disorder, I think we haven't discussed that too much, but certainly the alpha-synucleinopathies can have REM sleep behavior disorder. We typically start with melatonin. If they're having bothersome dream enactment behavior, that's either an issue for both them from a safety perspective or to their bed partner. And then if that's not sufficient, um, then we consider clonazepam. No, I think that was a fantastic overview. I definitely agree that a lot of this, you know, neuropsychiatric symptoms, these cognitive symptoms are, it does take a little bit of time to find the appropriate balance between their symptoms. And it's definitely something I've really grown to have a very big appreciation for, particularly in our movement disorder clinic, because it it can take a bit of time and a lot of very subtle changes that ultimately do lead to a pretty big increase in quality of life for these patients. I think that covers most of what we wanted to talk about today. So we've gone through our two tauopathies when it comes to progressive supranuclear palsy, cortical basal syndrome, cortical basal degeneration, and then the two synucleinopathies as well, be it multisystem atrophy and dementia with Lewy body. I think going through these cases, hopefully we were able to highlight some of the really big symptoms and signs that really tee off a movement disorder specialist to, you know, think about these alternative diagnoses, even if somebody's coming with a, with a form diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And then also some of these more classic imaging findings and more holistic approaches to management. So I really want to thank both Catherine and Sarah for helping us out with this podcast today. I think it was a good one. Karen, thank you so much for having me. I just want to make one final point about just sort of taking a step back and like looking at this from an overarching view. I think something that can be really helpful is just really focusing on that time course. And so, you know, I recently saw a new referral for tremor and Parkinsonism, and this patient had gotten like every diagnostic test, like MIBG, DAT scan, skin biopsies, but they were like 12 years into their disease course with mild tremor, rigidity, and bradykinesia, right? And so someone who has had symptoms for that long and is still ambulatory and doing pretty well, like it's pretty unlikely that they have a Parkinson's plus syndrome. The, the Parkinson's plus syndromes, these are people who, you know, tend to progress pretty rapidly 
you know, a lot of those red flag signs, early falls, wheelchair bound in those first three to five years. But if people are looking pretty good, you know, at that 10 to 12 year mark, it's, I would say less likely that they have some of these conditions and you don't necessarily need to feel compelled to do this huge workup in in that case. No. And I think that really is a great point because a lot of this does come down to clinical history, clinical presentation, and ultimately progression. And I do think a lot of these patients ultimately will declare themselves in one way or another. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, Aaron. This was fantastic. I really enjoyed this. Thanks, Aaron, for having me. 